You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning. It is so good to be with you. If this is your first time joining us, either here or online, uh, we have been going through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we started the series beginning of August last year, so it's been eight months that our church family has been going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And actually next Sunday, Pastor Riz is going to be uh, finishing this series of the Sermon on the Mount. So eight months in, we've been working slowly through these few chapters in Matthew, and uh, today we are actually going to be covering the final words of the sermon together. Uh, Because we've spent so much time in the Sermon on the Mount in these three chapters of Matthew, I thought it would be helpful before we actually get into the passage this morning to sort of set the stage and just remind and refresh us of what the setting is that this sermon is delivered. Uh, So when Jesus gives this sermon, it's actually at the very beginning of his ministry. And Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee, which makes a lot of sense. This is where Jesus is from. This is where his hometown of Nazareth is located. And as he begins his ministry, he's doing two things. Uh, First, he's going from synagogue to synagogue. And everywhere he goes, he's announcing the kingdom of God. The second thing that he's doing, Matthew tells us, is that he is demonstrating incredible acts of power. It says that he is healing every disease and sickness. So as you can imagine, as his ministry launches, word travels quickly that something is happening in Galilee. There is a man in Galilee saying things and doing things that we've never heard before. And so crowds begin to flock to Jesus. And at the end of Matthew chapter four, it says that they're not just coming from Galilee, they're coming from the entire nation, from down south in the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from across the Jordan River. And when they come, they're bringing their sick. They're bringing those who are in pain. It says people who are suffering from demon possession, um, who are paralyzed, who suffer from seizures. And they're being brought to Jesus and Jesus is healing them. And the curious thing is, is that these crowds, when they come to Jesus, They aren't just healed and then they leave, but it says at the end of Matthew chapter four that they stay and they begin to follow Jesus. And in Matthew chapter five, verse one, it says that Jesus looks and sees the crowds. He sees the sheer number of people that are following him. And then it says he climbs up on the mountain, he sits down, and he begins to teach them. And what follows in the next three chapters of your Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are what have been famously named the Sermon on the Mount. And it's hard for me to um, overestimate how important these three chapters are. Uh, This is the most concentrated form of Jesus' teachings in the entire New Testament, these three chapters right here. And when Jesus begins to teach, what he says is he basically is describing, here's what it looks like if you want to follow me. Here's what it looks like if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. And over the last eight months, if you've been here in this church, uh, you know that the Sermon on the Mount contains some of Jesus' most famous teachings on love for your enemy, on prayer, 
on forgiveness, on anxiety, on money. All of these things Jesus is teaching on. But something happens in chapter 7, verse 13. The sermon is winding down, and in chapter 7, verse 13, there's a shift. There's a transition that happens from the content of the sermon to this choice, this challenge, this question that Jesus begins to pose to the people who have been listening to his sermon. And the question is this, what will you do with the words that you have just heard Jesus speak on that mountain? What are you going to do with what you have just heard? Because you can't go back, you can't unhear. You have seen his power and you have heard his words and now there's a decision. And there was a decision um, for those crowds in Galilee 2,000 years ago and then today uh, there's a decision for us as well. What are we gonna do with the words that we've heard Jesus speak from the mountain? If you have your Bibles, um, please turn with me to our text for this morning, which is Matthew chapter seven, verses 24 through 27. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. These are the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read together. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Uh, let's pray together. Jesus, we love you and um, we ask that you would speak to us this morning Jesus, we know that you are present here, you are present in our lives, and that this sermon has everything to do with us. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would be speaking individually to each person in this room exactly what you need them to hear from this text this morning. And I pray that we would walk away changed by what we hear. Amen. For those of you who don't know, uh, I grew up in a amazing Christian family. Shout out to my mom and dad there in the back. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because of this, uh, my childhood was very saturated in the Bible. So I grew up uh, doing Awana, for those of you who are familiar with Awana, yes, uh, VBS. And I would go to those Sunday schools where they would teach uh, Bible stories using felt boards. Was there anyone else in that era? Yeah, it was a great time to be a kid. Yeah, the felt board Sunday school era. Um, and if you had a similar upbringing to mine, then it means that the passage that I just read for you is likely very, very familiar. And the reason is because in the church, at least in the United States, it is a very popular story to teach to children. And the main reason for this is because there is a very catchy children's song called Don't Build Your House on the Sandy Land, which I will not be singing for you, but it has been stuck in my head all week, that's about this story. And something that we talk a lot about in our equip classes on Wednesdays is that when you are very, very familiar with a passage, not that it's a bad thing, but there is a danger in familiarity. 
right? The more familiar we are with a text or a story, the more likely we are to stop listening, to stop really listening, because we've, we've already heard, we know, and we kind of zone out. So I come to this passage just acknowledging that this is a very familiar story to most of us. And so we want to sort of let, set aside what we know about this story and try as best as we can to read it with fresh eyes, new perspective, as if we're hearing it for the first time. So our plan this morning, very straightforward, we're going to look at the story first that Jesus tells, we're going to look at what it means, and then talk about just some practical ways that we can apply it to our lives. So we know that Jesus is giving this sermon on a mountainside in Galilee, which means that most likely we are meant to picture the setting of this story of the two builders near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, For those of you who like visuals, um, I think we have a couple of pictures of the Sea of Galilee. Um, This picture here, by the way, I have never been, I would love to say I took these photos near the Sea of Galilee. One day I will go. Um, What I like about this picture here is uh, it's taken from where people believe maybe the area where Jesus was preaching the sermon above the Sea of Galilee. Um, And there's another picture. Um, So most likely this this parable, this story about the two builders, we would imagine, uh, we're meant to imagine takes place here at the Sea of Galilee. Now our first builder in the story is wise. And that word for wise in Greek, it describes a practical kind of wisdom. Uh, We might even use the term like street smarts or common sense. It's the kind of wisdom that helps you navigate through life well. You are wise, you have this practical sense of what is a good decision, what's a bad decision to make. And our first builder is called wise because he makes the decision to build his house on rock. And we shouldn't think that this is actually an easy decision for the builder to make. So if we are meant to imagine this taking place along the Sea of Galilee, if you were a builder and you wanted to build your house on a bedrock foundation, it meant that you would have to dig down, sometimes as deep as 10 feet below the surface until you hit bedrock. Obviously, the wise builder decides This is the right way to go. He counts the cost, and despite the fact that it's gonna cost more money, it's gonna take more time, it's gonna require more labor, he decides this is the way to go, and he builds his house on a rock foundation. Now in the story, we don't know how much time passes. We don't know how long this builder gets to enjoy the house, enjoy all his new furniture and kitchen appliances before the storm comes. But at some point, his house is tested by a storm. And you guys may have noticed that Jesus gets really descriptive about how bad this storm is. So look with me at verse 25. It says, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Uh, Now the weather in Israel is actually very similar, a lot of people say to like California, in that there's two main seasons. There's the dry, hot summer season, and then there's the rainy season, the rainy, wet winters. And so in Israel, during the summer, you barely get any rain at all. Um, it's very dry, it's very deserty. But at the end of the year, starting in October, especially a couple months, December through February, there are these giant thunderstorms that roll in off of the Mediterranean Sea. And a place like Galilee can get up 
to 20 inches of rain in just a couple of months because of these storms. And what happens, and still happens in Israel today, is that these ravines and dry creek beds begin to flood, and the Sea of, actually, the sea of Galilee can actually overflow its banks, and it can be very destructive, both now and then, when Jesus was teaching. And I think it's this kind of storm we're meant to imagine hits the house of the wise builder, and yet his house comes through unscathed on the other side, completely intact. This is contrasted with our foolish builder, and the word foolish is the Greek word morose, which we know because it's where we get our English word for moron from. It's not a flattering uh, term. And the reason that this builder is foolish is because he decides to build his house on the sand. Now, when we hear sand, we shouldn't think that he built his house on Waimanalo Beach. That's not the kind of sand that is being described here. This sand is just the topsoil of the ground. In other words, this builder is saying, you know what, I don't want to take the time to dig down to bedrock. I don't want to take the effort, the work, the cost to do that. And most likely he's building during dry season and the ground is hard as a rock. There is no rain in sight. It hasn't rained for months. And it seems like, you know what, this is the best way to go. I'm going to build my house right here on the topsoil of the Sea of Galilee. And I would argue that for a while, it may actually look like he made the better choice. After all, less cost, less time, less money, and on the outside, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two houses. The man who built on the rock, the man who built on the sand, they're both enjoying their homes, they both seem like they had a similar like product. And so the foolish man may feel like he made the wise decision. But eventually, inevitably, his house is also tested by a storm. Matthew 7, 27. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. So notice, it's only when this storm rolls in that the foundation is revealed. Before the storm comes, it would appear that both houses, they look the same, they seem the same, but the storm really functions as a revealer. It reveals who built their house on the rock and who did not. So there are four elements in this story, this parable. There are the builders, there's the house, there's the foundation, and there's the storm. And what I want to do this morning is just we're going to briefly look at each of those four elements of the story and talk a little bit about what they represent, the meaning behind them. So the first uh, element to this story are the builders, and we know that the builders represent everyone who has heard the words of Jesus. Jesus says this clearly about both builders. In fact, he says, that the builders represent, quote, everyone who hears these words of mine. What words is he talking about? What are these words of mine that Jesus is referring to? This is the sermon. It's the sermon that they have just heard. And this is the final paragraph of that sermon. And he says, everything that you have just heard makes you a builder. Everyone who hears these words of mine so everyone in that crowd of Galilee on the, on the mount was a builder. 
We have just gotten through eight months of studying the Sermon on the Mount. We have heard the words of Jesus. Uh, we are the builders in this story. This story is not about someone else. It is about every person in this room who have heard the words of Jesus. We are the builders in this story. And then the houses, the houses that are being built, these represent the lives that each and every one of us have built, are building, will continue to build. Uh, there's a quote that I really uh, enjoyed from C.G. Chapel. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, we are building all the time, whether wisely or foolishly. We are building by everything that we do. We are building by every thought that we think. We are building by every word that we speak, every dream that we dream, every picture that we hang upon the walls of our imagination, every ambition that we cherish. And there's this picture in this story that Jesus tells um, that communicates we've all been given one life to live and every single one of us, whether we like it or not, we are building. Every day, every hour, every minute, each one of us are building and everything that we do, the places that we spend our energy, our time, the words that we speak, the actions of our lives are building blocks of a life. And as Chapel points out in that quote, it's not a question of whether or not we are builders, we all are. The only question is whether or not you are a wise or foolish in the way you build your life. Which brings us to the third element of the parable, which is the rock foundation. Um, this rock foundation represents the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And what I think is so powerful about this little story is that there's really only comes down to one choice. Everything in this story is static, it's set. We are builders, we are building our life, and one day a storm will come. The only choice in this story is whether or not we will build our lives on the words and teachings of Jesus or whether we will not. And so, the sermon ends and uh, it's very telling that this is the final words of the sermon because it really boils down to a choice that each and every person must make. Will you be like the wise builder who counted the cost, who knew, you know what, yeah, this is gonna be difficult, this may be challenging, this may cost me something, but in the end, with this one life that I have to live, it is the wise choice, the better choice, the good choice to build my life on the teachings of this Jewish teacher. And Jesus promises that for those who make that decision, when the storm comes, everything that they have built will stand. So that brings us to the fourth element of the story, which is the storm. Something to notice, again, is that the storm comes to both houses. And Jesus uses the exact same description for each time the storm comes. Uh, most likely, the storm here represents a final day 
of testing, a final day of judgment. Uh, it's very common in the Bible um, to talk about the judgment of God coming as a flood. In Romans chapter 14, Paul talks about how each and every person, there will be a moment where we stand before the throne of God and it says we will give an account of our lives to the Lord. We don't know when that day is coming. Uh, This is why Jesus is always teaching to be prepared, to be ready for that day when it does come. Because it will come unexpectedly. Paul describes that day as it coming like a thief in the night that comes unexpectedly. People are unaware. And the only thing that will matter on that day is what did you do with the words of Jesus? What did you do with the words of Jesus? Did you respond or did you not? That's what it will all come down to. And the beautiful thing here is that for those who are followers of Jesus, there is nothing to fear about a final day of judgment. That wise builder could sleep soundly through the biggest storm of his life because he knew that his house was built on a rock and there was nothing to be scared of by the storm rolling through because all it did was reveal the rock. And that is a promise from Jesus to each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus when we talk about this scary final day of judgment. It's not scary for those who are followers of Jesus who've built their lives on the rock. Um, Those can actually look forward to that day. As beautiful as the Sermon on the Mount is, it only benefits those who put it into practice. Uh, It is not enough to hear, unfortunately, (laughs) it is not enough to hear the words of Jesus, it's not enough to study the words of Jesus, it's not enough to talk about the words of Jesus. They will only benefit you when you put them into practice. And last week, uh, Pastor Riz talked a lot about this relationship between how we live our lives, revealing what's really going on internally. Because our actions, our lives do matter. They reveal what we really believe. Uh, Something that really helped me kind of wrap my mind around this is uh, there's an author named Michael Novak. He was a political philosopher, also a believer. And he wrote a book called Belief and Unbelief. And in that book, he talks about these three levels of belief. Um, I kind of like to view them as like layers, three layers of belief. And the first layer, he says, these are your public convictions. This is what you tell people you believe, right? Um, Maybe they're true, maybe they're not, but this is what you are speaking out. This is what I believe. The second level of belief is what you tell yourself you believe. This is what I think I believe. But even this is a bit unreliable, right? Because we often think of ourselves a little bit better than we actually are, right? It's one thing to think to myself, yeah, I believe it's better to give than to receive. But until an opportunity comes for me to give and not receive, will I actually find out whether I believe that's true, right? I might think, wow, it's so beautiful how Jesus talks about loving your enemies. But until I am faced with an enemy, Only then will I know how I actually feel about that statement, right? And so that leads us to that third level of belief, which is action. These are our core beliefs. 
And how we live our lives reveals really what's going on in our hearts. And this is why Jesus says in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then again, uh, just a chapter later, in John 15, eight, Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We can't separate what's going on internally with how we live our lives. Over time, how we live will just reveal um, what's in our hearts. And this connection is uh, very, very strong, and we see it throughout Scripture. So, where do we go from here? Um, I was, as I was studying this passage, I was thinking of just like tangible ways that we can respond, right? Because that's what this is all about. We want to respond. How do I respond to this parable? Um, and so I have just a few takeaways that I think uh, they've benefited me. I hope that they'll benefit some of you as we're thinking about how do we move forward? How do we be that wise builder who decided, you know what, I want to spend my life and build my life on this foundation? So first of all, and this, uh, this is probably pretty obvious, but we must first know the teachings of Jesus. That has to come first, we have to start there. If we do not know, if we are not familiar with what Jesus taught, then we can never do them, right? So we have to start here. And the good news is, as a church family, we are just finishing a really detailed look at this sermon. And so for a lot of us, we are familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Um, but as you guys know, that our journey with the Sermon on the Mount doesn't end here. Um, these are chapters that as believers, as disciples, that we should spend our lives in. These are the chapters that we're gonna come back to over and over and over again in our lives. And so I would encourage you, if you're sitting there and you're like, you know what, I actually don't know if I am all that familiar with what Jesus actually taught or how he describes what his followers should look like. I don't know. I'm not actually that familiar. This is a great place to start. Begin to read and listen to the teachings of Jesus so that they're in your mind, they're on your heart. You're thinking of them, you are familiar with them. This is where it has to start. Second, uh, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about this week. I think it's really important that we pay attention to what the small storms and tests of our life reveal about us. Um, it is guaranteed throughout this life we will be faced with very stressful situations. Uh, the last two years is a great example of that. We will be faced with very difficult people. Uh, we will have to make big decisions. And all of these moments in our life, um, one way we can think of them is like little storms or little tests that actually reveal what's underneath. And so I think it's really helpful, this is a practice that I am uh, trying to adopt, is just to pay attention to how I respond to these situations, whether for good or for bad. Because really, they're just gauges. It's just a thermometer checking up on you and saying, hey, how did you respond there? Right? And that's so helpful because it allows us, on the one hand, to say, hey, this area of my life, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's finances, uh, maybe it's anger, 
we're kind of on sand over here. Like we need more work to do here. And that's great that we're aware of that because then we can partner with the Holy Spirit in becoming more and more like Jesus. And then on the flip side, we don't do this very much, but I think it's important too, when a test does come our way and we do respond more like Jesus than we would have a year ago or two years ago, we can celebrate that and thank the Holy Spirit for how he is already transforming us. He is already making us look more and more like Jesus. And that's actually a really encouraging thing, right? Uh, you might encounter a situation where you're able to forgive someone that you weren't able to forgive two years ago. You're able to be generous in a way that you would never have been generous a year or two ago. And so you can start to see yourself being formed into the image of the Son of God, which is the journey that we're all a part of. And it is a process. Um, it is a process and it is a journey. And we're all at different parts of our journey and our walk. And that's what makes the family of God so beautiful is that we're doing it together with one another. The last thing, uh, takeaway to remember is that the, Jesus' teachings lead to life. They lead to life. And this has been so important for me to remember. Uh, it is very easy to walk away, I think, from the Sermon on the Mount and feel like I just have read a giant checklist of things that I need to do. And you can walk away feeling almost like a guilt trip. I have to do all of these things. And I would just push back against that a little bit and say that what Jesus is doing in a Sermon on the Mount is it's actually an invitation for us to a better way of living, a better way of being a human that will actually lead to our good, to our benefit. It will lead to freedom, it will lead to peace. These aren't things that we do to sacrifice and we just suffer through it. Jesus is inviting us actually to become the kind of people you were created to be. And if you are skeptical, um, I want you to just imagine for a moment with me that you encounter someone, a person, who embodies the Sermon on the Mount. Just imagine that with me for a minute. They embody this sermon that Jesus preached. What would that look like? This would be a person who did not hold anger in their heart towards another person. No bitterness, no anger, no rage. This is a person who is not anxious or worried about the future because they know that they have a father in heaven who cares for them, who loves them, and who will provide everything that they need for them. This is a person that is generous with their time and their money, knowing that it's all a gift from God anyway. And this is a person who, when someone wrongs them, not only is able to forgive, but is able to love in return. And I think it's important that we have this picture in our minds because I think what I, as I've been thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, um, is that this isn't a chore, this isn't a list of things that we have to try and do, it's an invitation to a new way of living that ultimately is gonna be for my good and bring freedom and peace to me. And I think that that paradigm shift is, is really important uh, we're going to transition into a time of worship and response. And I would encourage you uh, to just, especially in that first song, just take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit what specifically he is speaking to you today. 
Each and every person is walking in with something different going on in their life. And I know that the Holy Spirit has a message tailored for you um, from this text today. And so just check in with the Holy Spirit. Ask him to speak to you personally and then respond. So as we transition, um, feel free to sit, stand. Um, There's communion if you would like to take communion. If you would like prayer for anything, there's gonna be a few people on the prayer team that are here that would love to pray for you. Or even grab someone else uh, that's next to you and pray with them. All right, as we uh, transition, I'm just gonna pray and close. Jesus, we love you uh, so much and we are privileged to be your disciples. We are privileged uh, that you have invited us to follow you. And I just pray over each and every person in this room um, that we would respond to your words, that we wouldn't be people who hear only, but people who build our lives on your words and your truth, knowing that they lead ultimately to our good. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak individually to each and every person in this room, right where we're at. Lord, that you would bring comfort to those who need comfort, that you would bring conviction to those who need conviction. God, that you would move and have your way in this time. Thank you.